I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. And I said, I want to win the league, but I want to win it better. You can understand that, can't you? Yes. Good luck. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. <laughs> second captain, first captain, whatever. So the Australians have their justice for Horwell and their captain will be free to take to the field for the final test on Saturday. Originally cleared of stamping in the first test, the Herald Sun in Melbourne, I don't know if you saw this, they described the IRB's appeal of that decision as the most ludicrous, unfair judicial hearing in rugby's history and possibly in any sport. <laughs> I know, it's true. I mean, all the IRB had to go on was the quite clear footage of a man stepping on another man's head. I mean, other than that, they had literally nothing else. But I mean, it's not often that... GA disciplinary procedures, you know, look pretty good by world sports standards. But on this occasion, you know, I have to say the CCCCCCCC couldn't have done it any better themselves. Shane Horgan and Trevor Hogan are going to be chatting to us a little bit later about all of that. David Moyes, first week at Old Trafford. Ken, how does he look like he's settling in there? Some awkward photographs I've noticed oh, on man. that. Unbelievably awkward. Why? Well, what was awkward about them? He just looked very, very well, there was first day at school. Yeah, he was, he was sitting behind a really terrible-looking desk with a little Manchester United mouse pad in front of him, and it kind of looked like he'd been sort of airdropped in there. But this is much more intimidating than the first day at school. I saw uh, some slightly awkward quotes from David Moyes as well. He's talking about his, his Everton coaches coming in to join him, and he says, uh, uh, they've, come, uh, they've agreed to join me at this great club. They bring great qualities in their respective fields. I have great faith. We can build on the success, which I guess the other response is, great. sounds great. Great. You know? And he's burbling a little bit, you know, but you've got to be nervous. I mean, when he's talking about, uh, you know, Manchester United, he's sort of, he's, he's just come in, he's, he's trying to sort of get used to this new role. Obviously, everyone's looking at him going, you know, prove yourself, Moyes. You know, what are you doing here? When Ferguson spoke about Manchester United, he talked about we, us. He was the club. I mean, he was there longer than anybody. He could speak about it with, with complete uh, authenticity. You know, when David Moyes sort of already, you know, when he speaks about the club, he has to kind of flatter it. You know, Ferguson never needed to describe Manchester United as this great club. You know, gr this great club was was implicit, was understood in everything that he said about Manchester United, you know. He must have had to say nice things back in 1986, though. Yeah, I mean, he did. He he did that. Um, I remember seeing footage of him, kind of one of the first uh, first couple of days after he he joined. And he's you know he's sort of looking around the stadium, going oh, you know, sort of uh, almost unable to really verbalize. It's just sort of making these 
moans of amazement at the sheer scale of these stands at Old Trafford, which, by the way, are absolutely tiny compared to what they are now. We're just talking about, you know, Aberdeen's a, Aberdeen's a great club, but this, whoa, whoa, you know, that's sort of, So maybe Moyes should have talked about Everton being a great club and then just sort of uh, started... Uh, Cooing orgasmically. Gasping, you know, yeah. and, and people would have understood. Yeah, Tim Vickery's going to chat to us later on about raised expectations in Brazil for the World Cup after their stunning success against Spain at the weekend. We'll be telling the amazing story today of Gino Bartali, the Italian cyclist who won the Tour de France twice, once each side of the Second World War. But it was during the war itself that he really distinguished himself using his fame, even using his bicycle itself to help save Jewish families in Italy. It's absolutely amazing stuff. And the author of a book on that one is going to chat to us later on. The London GA... Supporters no. and team finally had their day in the summer. Unbelievable, Owen. Uh, unbelievable scenes on uh, on Sunday in Roscommon, and you know it, it was a big day for the for the supporters. You know, I mean Boris Johnson. He comes from a great GA family, of course. Jason Statham and Danny Dyer were in Roscommon, uh, I believe. And you know, on days like like Sunday, you know, you can't help but think back to great supporters like Keith Moon and Joe Strummer, who who unfortunately weren't there to to enjoy the the, the, the great day. But you know. God be good to them. The, uh, the and there there has been a culture change, you know, in the London GA scene. You know, the days of gear bags being left outside pubs in Brick Lane and Shoreditch, and managers have to go in and pull these lads out of dive bars. I mean, it's 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 long gone, oh, long gone, and uh, it was a hell of a scene. Here's how Shannon side called that London win. Are so strong, so physical, and they've done Levy. And it's his opportunity here, and it's Hannah who's one and one, and he plays it outside him, and another chance of a goal, and it's in the net. It's number twelve who has got it. It's Kieran McCallie in, and Leacham have it back. Last chance saloon now for Leacham. They come forward. The ball is kicked in here towards uh, James Clancy. He's way out from goal. James Clancy is seventy meters out. James Clancy kicks the diagonal ball. Brilliant pass. Leacham have it inside. Here's a chance for Barry Pryor. Barry Pryor gets it back outside him. Someone needs to have. Regarded. James Lancy is screaming for it. Paddy McGowan is there. Robbie Lowe is there. They got the ball back inside here. Nobody wants to take a shot. James Lancy is 45. James Lancy is going to shoot. Right. In the course of James Lancy, it's gone wide. And that surely, that surely has to be Leacham's chance gone. The London substitutes are dancing down in the dugouts. He's looking at the watch. He blows the whistle. And London are through to the cutoff final. And Paul Coggins dances at the light down in the sideline. What a victory for London! John Lynch and Seamus Gallagher from Shannon's side there calling you through the uh, the end of the action. We will get back to that with one of London's victorious players in a little while. Anthony Moyles and Roscommon's Carol Mannion are in studio. Ushi McConville on holidays this week, so Carol's been good enough to come into us. But Mer, first of all, you were at the Galway Tip game at the weekend, and something's been—I've noticed something's been bugging you about it ever well, since. Well, yeah, there were a couple of issues about it because I mean, I think we all understand what you know, iconic championship game feels like, you know, that, that that's our understanding of championship football. But the qualifiers obviously is a totally different mindset. Uh, oftentimes you're playing at weird, strange times on a Saturday afternoon or a Saturday evening. But what's really struck me is that Supermax have started catering these games, right, in Pierce Stadium. Mm-hmm. And they're selling pizzas now, right? So I was trying to get my head into sort of championship mode, start of the second half, Goal error, point up against Tipperary, having played with the breeze in the second half. I'm feeling quite nervous. You know, I'm, I'm feeling as if I'm putting everything that I, c- I can as a supporter into this game. And everyone within a 10-seat radius of me is 
destroying 12-inch pizzas. <laughs> I, just, it, I found it very off-putting, and it's not really what I expect from championship football. You know, yeah. I, I'm a little concerned about it. I mean, obviously, it's top-quality cuisine, on, but at the same time, I think you know, if there's a goal of supporters out there need to focus on what's really important. They maybe should have ch- had a look at this in the recent rule changes. Anthony, this is serious stuff here that Murph brings it up. It is, it is. I, I can't believe it. Well, I mean, I'm a, pun- a punt of the yeah. chips is fine. You know, we, I mean, we grew up with that. That's fine. I can handle that. But it's just the pizzas. I, I, I think it's a British effect. Yeah, I've been actually in Pierce Aim, obviously, a couple of times playing Murph. Yeah. And you, tra- you, you warm up on the prairie beside it. Yeah, yeah, And yeah. you actually walk in by that Superman's <laughs> van. I think a couple of times myself and Seneca Bride would just nod to each other. Get one of them after. <laughs> Half Seneca might be thinking of getting one before <laughs> yeah, we both weren't fair to that day, I won't lie listen there were a few big wins over the weekend Dublin Tyrone and Armagh which also means there were a few big defeats and when you're on the wrong end of something like that I guess it wasn't quite so heavy for you recently Carl with Roscommon against Mayo but it was a big enough beating I'm wondering yeah. is there a different feeling to that kind of a loss than when you lose by a last minute kick is it easier to take in some ways because you didn't compete is it harder to take because you let yourselves down it's it's hard to say. I think when you lose by in a tight game, it can be very very uh, disheartening. Uh, the dynamics of the team though is the big thing. How senior, the, how old the team are, as how mature they are, uh, how they react to it is the big thing. Uh, when you get a big big defeat though, sometimes it's probably a little easier to to come back if you have a bit of time. Uh, when you get a really close defeat to come back quick is is it is hard. I must say uh, it does affect you a bit more when you think you're very very close to getting to whatever it is a, a Leinster final or kind of final or even to win the trophy. Uh, to lose by a narrow margin is very very hard to take, and I think it's harder sometimes to come back from that. To lose by sixteen points, so for example, as Kildare did, Anthony, is there that's got to affect the confidence in some way? Yeah, you'd feel it does. On like I mean. <laughs> I've seen people in the last few days think that oh, Kildare will bounce back against Loud. I'd be very, very worried about that game, because you know, Carl, Carl will tell you. I, I know the the first game in the qualifiers is always the most difficult game. Um, it's just so it's mentally it's mental more than physical. You know, you can get yourself right, you can be fit, you can do the training, you can do an extra bit of training, but it really doesn't make a difference. It's all about the mind going into it. It's all about how how lads react, and it's as much about how the management react. You know. Worst thing is management could kind of decide, right, let's get them out here and let's just absolutely tear into them up and down the paddock, train them for the next five days out of seven or something like this. And then you just actually hate being there. You know, a more mature approach would be that actually a fellow would say, hold on a second, let's actually scour over the video. Maybe just do a complete video analysis session on the Tuesday and say, okay, let's see. And let's have a truth and honesty session. So fellas actually put their hands up and say, well, okay, I could have done a bit more there. I didn't do enough there. That was a bad ball or whatever it is. And actually just kind of clear it out of the system and then say, right, that's the end of it. Now let's move on. But I think if you don't... Yeah, different fellas will have different approaches and that's 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 the major, major obstacle I think for anyone and especially a team like Kildare because Kildare would have fancied themselves um, I think they try to go toe-to-toe obviously with Dublin and when you're when you're going toe-to-toe either, either it works for you or it works badly against you you know and there's no real way you can change that in the middle of the game I remember again in Kildare in the quarter-final in 2010 you know me to always kind of play this style but it was toe-to-toe. We had an unbelievable start. I think we were 1-3 or 1-4 to a point up in the first 15 minutes. We were cruising. We probably should have got a, got another goal. Joe hit the, hit the post. Um, everything going well. And Kildare, it was even enough just before the end of the first half. And they got a signal of a goal just before. And then they got another goal at the start of the second half. And that was it. Game over. I think we were bet by seven or eight points. Yeah, like it's very, very hard to kind of drastically change the way you're setting up in the middle of a game to stop the momentum of another, of another team. 
like Kildare did go out to play them man on man like uh, and to make a switch to a purely defensive game halfway through that game would have been next to impossible like it's just it's just so hard to kind of for players in the pitch to change their state of mind of where they have to be who they're picking up at what times so it is very very hard to do that yeah, it's the question that uh, Paul Grimley was posed. I mean, in the aftermath of Armagh uh, losing so badly and Brawley coming out, coming out and slating him uh, directly afterwards. That was a number of weeks ago, yeah. Yeah, is that, you know, if you train for six months with a certain game plan in mind for the big championship game that you know you're going to be playing, for you to then change it after 20 minutes or 25 minutes, it actually smacks of a lack of conviction in, on the part of the manager as well. So, it's you know, it's your typical Cash-22 situation. Really. Yeah, but is there anything... Is there any conviction about losing a match by 16 points at the same time? Is it not a needs-most situation? We're going to get stuffed here. So you don't have to change everything, but maybe just drop a player or two a little bit deeper. But I think the players on the pitch have to take responsibility. And, and McGinney has, has gone with... The one thing that kind of has amazed me over the last number of years, certain fellows who you would have thought were, were kind of stalwarts in McGinney's team, like this guy Rob Kelly last year, who kind of took the championship by storm, Kavanaugh, different fellows, they're all gone now. You know, Mikey Conway is was number 25 or 26 in the subs the other day. Now, maybe he was injured, but certain lads who you would have felt there's good championship experience there, they'd be able to change it as they see it. Like, I watched I watch, I watch the game back, and even the first goal, Killer lads could have done more. You know, they were tracking back, but they weren't really tracking back. The ball went out, to, went out to Bernard Brogan, and they weren't really making the effort. You know, there was a couple of opportunities, even for the second goal. Even the goal that Connolly got, like, that guy should never let McManaman go by him because you know as McManaman's coming at you, he's going straight to goal. So just take a yellow card. Like, just take the yellow card, pull him down. He had enough ample opportunity to do it. And also the the thing of, you see it as as it's going on, like, Kildare left a, a passageway down the middle of the field that you could have driven a, a Dublin bus down it, you know, never mind the team. Like, literally just fellas were just streaming through. And the number six who, okay, Flaherty was gone because he, he was injured, but... The new lad who came on, he was just being dragged left and right. And you have to have the sense to say to yourself, I'm actually being pulled out of this to create space. So actually what we're going to do is we're going to defend in front of the goal. Like the one thing we always did, I remember setting up before Dublin games and you say, look lads, Dublin need goals like they require oxygen. You do not, you don't want to get the hill behind them. Like, you, you, you know, you, you see Dublin games, they'd rather score 4-3 than 18 points, if you know what I mean. Like, they just would, because they live off goals. So you say to yourself, one thing you've got to do is you've got to get back to that danger zone. Even if you're beating out in the side or you're tracking back as a midfielder half-forward, get back to in front of the D and just make sure even we block them if they stick it over the bar all well and good we'll regroup and we'll start again but no goals I think one thing about Kildare as well Anthony just picked up on your point there uh, for teams that are consistently successful over the last number of years they have a core eight or nine players that are always there always in the same positions I don't think you can say that about Kildare as much as about other teams they have certain players that are always there but then they have other players that are moving positions and then they have a lot of younger players I think Kieran McGinney made a decision this year that he's going with these younger guys a lot of them do look very good now they are raw and inexperienced but I think he might have just made the decision right these are the guys for the future this is the time to change this Kildare team Outside, I, I certainly take that point regards Donny Gall they're virtually unchanged over the last couple of years very few changes but is that generally the case with all the big teams you think that there's, you don't you, you only tinker at one or two positions each season. Well, like, yeah, for teams that are pushing on each year that are challenged for the All-Ireland each year, you might have one or two guys that they bring in during the league that get into the championship team and that are that are at the top table all the time. Like Donegal, actually, we played them in a qualifier in about 07 or 08 and they would have maybe 11 or 12 of the same guys playing that day that are still playing now. 
that they're still the core of that team and they're the ones that have worked hard and they've got up to the level. You can say the same when I would carry like in Cork to a certain extent that when they were at the top table there trying for Ireland it was the same players year in year out with two or three new young lads adding to it and that's what they need. And I think Kildare this year similar maybe to Galway in 98 Kieran, yeah. like they just brought in all these new young players and they're going to go with them. Yeah, I think so, you know, and I think that the point is is uh, is very well made in relation to Kildare in that there's, it seems as if it's very upwardly mobile and downwardly mobile squad. So a guy can be flavour of the month in 2010 and be totally out of it in 2011 and be back in, in 2012. And, you know, obviously that gives rise to great competition for places, but maybe it's at the, it's at, to the detriment of actually having a core of guys that at half time on Sunday would be able to look at each other and say, right, we know what we need to do here. We're five points down just shut up shop for 10 minutes and try and work our way into the game. And I, th- I think maybe uh, Kildare players haven't had the five or six years of knowing that they're a starter on the championship mm-hmm. team, like they're, they're the core guys. Uh, if, if you're always kind of looking over your shoulder for your place, I think you're going to be, you know, you're, you're, not half of, you're not really as inclined to become the leader that, you, that your team kind of needs you to be. Anthony, I've finally done the maths, by the way. That four goals and three points equates to 15. Mm. You said they'd be happier yeah. with that than they would be with 18. Not the brightest Dublin footballers <laughs> we're talking about here. Well, <laughs> look, you know, a goal is worth probably <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I mean, spiritually he means, yes. you know. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting that Carl says it in some ways the heavy defeat like that can be a little bit easier to come back from you're like you're not stewing maybe over the one or two individual do you find that sometimes as an individual maybe you can be absorbed into this overall feeling that look we just didn't play to our potential today whereas if you only lose by a point or two you're probably over analyzing every last thing or would you just prefer not to take that heavy beating in the first place as Carl says, I think it's the dynamics of the team. You know, it, it's about leaders on the team and it's as much about kind of the leaders who are in that Kildare squad or who are in whatever squad it is um, over the next kind of week or so. You know, it's, 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 we've gone into the qualifiers in previous times after C, you know, either drawn with Dublin and then being beaten in, 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 in the replay. That was a pretty tough one to take. And then we had to go in. I remember we had a pretty, we had to play down in the first game up there, which was, which was a tricky, tricky game. Um, but it's, it's, it's as much about, you just have to say to yourself, look, what's the best way to deal with it? Every different manager, some managers will be used to going into it. We were pretty used to going into them <laughs> at that stage, but some fellas won't know how to go into it. So, like, I mean, it, it, it re- this is where the manager really will take an awful lot of credit um, and you'll find out who's actually really up for it and who's not. You know, fellas will give you the sound bites, oh, we train really hard, but actually might be about training. Like, I mean, you're not going to get that much fitter in two weeks. Very, very few. Actually, you're not going to get fitter at all. But what's it, what really is going to tell is what's, a, what's, what's, what's you know, the, the, the six inches, etc. Like, I mean, what can you actually do mentally to get over what's happened? Um, and, and Murph, the, the point that he makes, like, I mean, the one thing I would worry um, and have worried about this Kildare team is a sense of there's nothing worse than being a player. If you know you're six or the nine of the core group, and I remember one thing about Sean Boylan was people in me just be going crazy when lads were going through bad spells. But Boylan always stuck with fellas. You know, like, I mean, I was a sub for a couple of years and I was saying, you know, how come I can't get on ahead of this guy if he was playing bad? And you, and you know it between a squad. <laughs> but he, he knew that this guy had done it for him before. And he knew that when push comes to shove, he'll do it for me again. Now, that's massive trust in a player. You know, and then sometimes near the end... That can go a little bit far, but you need you need as a player to know that your manager also has that trust in you. Now, as long as you're not taking the mick, you know, and you. But like I mean, if you are a guy who's won all Irelands or who's won tight games and who can come through, 
it's it's fantastic to have that in your team because I'll tell you what it does is it makes sure that just, it just doesn't all fall apart which happened to Kildare yeah like it obviously helps to win games but it also helps when a team does get on top of you that the core players that have always been there that the manager puts their he puts his trust in they will respond well to a bit of adversity in the middle of the game and it's less likely for a strong core a strong team that have senior players to suffer a defeat like that well, one team who probably have had to get used to dealing with adversity and some heavy defeats in the past is the London Gay football team. But uh, not this year, because they're through to their first ever Connacht final. Delighted to have uh, their defender, Dave McGreevy, on the line with us now. Dave, congratulations on the, uh, on the victory. For one thing, I see Boris Johnson has gotten behind you guys, so you must be pretty pleased. Are you going to get him over to Castle Bar, do you think? He'd be a bit silly to turn it down, I reckon. I wouldn't be turning it down. But, uh, I don't know, great to get there. Uh, still unbelievable, but uh, back in the work today, so crashed down the crashed back down the earth now. Today. What was the situation after the game? You you stayed around in Roscommon for the evening. Um, we went. We're, we're hanging out the change. We're on the pitch for about an hour afterwards, because like, obviously all our parents went to watch the game. Like, and you know, it was good to see them. And uh, went and got just got something to eat, and then back to the hotel. And then I think we obviously done a bit of celebrating out in afternoon then that night. Still in shock, <laughs> I suppose, like we're into a corner final. Yeah, it's incredible, Dave. And this, you mentioned the scenes afterwards, but we just kind of caught glimpses of them, I guess, on TV, in the dressing room and on the pitch. Were they mostly friends and family and uh, that sort of thing who were on there celebrating with you? Because it looked absolutely brilliant. A, a lot of family now, you know. I think the first person was just to grab me. Like, I obviously went up to shake a little more time. First person to grab me was my dad. Like, he, he was the first person on the pitch. So I don't know, he must have, he must have sprinted on, God knows where, but uh, I was just with my mom and dad afterwards, but the whole time you're just meeting everyone else's parents, and just, you know, friends from home and that, you know, and plus there was a good uh, number of people that flew over from London, so it was just, everyone was just hugging one another, because it's just really unbelievable. Yeah, I uh, I actually played quite a bit of football with Damien Dunleavy, who was your centre-forward on, uh, on, on Sunday, and... I know that he had so many struggles here at home uh, with injury and on and off the goal of team and never really got a run. And I know that he comes from an absolutely football mad family. And I just think it's absolutely amazing that he had sort of a, an afternoon like that and all, that all of you had an afternoon like that where kind of out of nowhere you're managing to, to get to the last 12 in the Ireland Championship, which is just such an, an amazing achievement. Yeah, yeah, well, you know, there's still there's still kind of final to come up, so I suppose I have to just refocus for that now. Um, Damien is, I'm sure you know your cell phone, is just a nightmare to mark. <laughs> so he, he, had a, he had a really good game there at the weekend, but uh, I know from training against Damien, just absolute nightmare to man to mark. Just always running, always always on the move. Oh no, it's brilliant afterwards. It was a, it was a big load you know, I came from his hometown down to watch that match, and you know, all the kind of Connacht guys. There was loads when I came to watch that match because like, I suppose Roscommon would be pretty close to where they... Yeah, we've got Roscommon's Carl Mannion here who I presume is somewhat envious of Dave this, this season, Carl. Yeah, like playing in Connacht Finals is what I've wanted to do ever since I was a young fella. Like, yeah, I only got to play in three of them myself. So it's a great, great day. Like I said, the London fellas are looking forward to it so much and they deserve every bit of it. They're up against Mayo. I don't know if you've got any advice maybe for Dave based on your experiences against him a few <laughs> oh, weeks ago. Well, I don't know if I can give any advice considering our performance against them. But uh, no, no, Mayo are a very impressive team. Like, you know, and they are very well prepared and set up very well. So uh, it's, it is going to be a big task for London night, but uh, there's no reason why they can't go over and give a good account of themselves, yeah? What do you think, David? Can you go into that with that sort of mindset that, look, we're massive, as big underdogs as you're going to get in a provincial final, but we might as well give it a shot? 
I don't know if we'll be thinking like that now. You just have to refocus, you know. See, our preparation for that replay was like management and all the players was just absolutely brilliant. You know, it wasn't until actually full time that I realised I'm into a kind of final here. I was just going out just thinking about the match. But uh, we don't really have the pressure over here. Like, there's nothing in the newspapers over here, and no one's asking you about the, you know, games day to day. So there's no pressure on us. We'll be going into that game. Hopefully, you know, prepare the exact same way we prepare for that replay. From your own point of view, Dave, yeah, that's great stuff. And from your own point of view, you came over from down. I understand you didn't play underage at inter-county level uh, in your own county. So to go over to London, start living there and get involved in something like this, as successful as this, it must be a pretty sweet feeling that you're kind of hitting the big time a little bit later than some players. Yeah, well, you know, you're saying uh, you you grew up hoping to get into a Connacht final. I don't think there was ever a time I was in County Down. I was thinking, God, I'd love to play in a Connacht final. Although it's been in Gettinger, but, you know, obviously I'm from Ulster, so you never really think of it like that. I know it's still hitting home, what what we've actually achieved here. But just going to have to refocus, you know, as I say. I'll keep on saying. <laughs> there were some dodgy singing voices in the dressing room afterwards, Dave. Were you one of them? I was in late last night, but uh, I heard boys singing Chumbawamba. I was just, just laughing my head off. <laughs> I think every like, every photograph I've seen now of me after the game, I'm just staring into space. Just, I can't get over it. Brilliant. Well, listen, Dave, we wish you well over the next uh, couple of weeks and in preparation and against Mayo in the final. Thanks a million for talking to us. Oh, no, no worries. Thanks. Dave McReavy there, who is playing for London. Absolutely amazing to hear a guy speaking like that. It's just it's quite a unique story, I suppose, Anthony. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. You know, it's fantastic. I, I thought they they blew it. You know, like I mean, I was just I couldn't believe I was in Crow Park and I was getting kind of the, the every five minutes I was just here and I was going, oh no, they're going to throw this away. You know, but especially down in Leitrim. You know, it's, or well, sorry, not in Leitrim, but playing Leitrim again. Like, I mean, there was a big crowd yeah. there and they were starting to come back at them. And I just thought, you know what, they've 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 shot their bolt here. But fair play to them. They actually kind of they got the composure back in the last few minutes, tagged on a couple of other scores. But it's fantastic. Like I've played against Lorcan Mulvey, I've played against different fellas who were on that team, um, and I know one one of the lads who actually used to be involved. Dunboyne, one of the Comer lads, was was playing with him last year, um, and he was kind of just telling me that the, the logistics of it to try and get the training was the real problem with it because you know London, like it's just at, at half five, six o'clock, seven mm-hmm. o'clock, it'd just be a nightmare, and you had fellas getting tubes and then buses and different stuff. But what they've done this year is they've actually let fellas go off work on their own kind of giving them programs and said look we trust you to do this and you better do it and they've all bought into it so they're only kind of coming and doing pitch sessions at weekends or once a week but it seems to have massively kind of generated this level of trust and camaraderie within the team and it's uh, it's paying off yeah, like I think the bond that the London players have is probably something similar to a Sigerson team uh, like when Sigerson players are playing yeah. together they're living away from home in a big city more more often than not uh, they have to really they're the only ones that are push, pushing the team they have to drive it on uh, I remember when I was in college in Trinity we were like the the, the lesser fed child of all the sports in Trinity <laughs> and we used to have a train out in Santry so going out through rush hour could be an hour an hour and a half out of training uh, and we also were one of the the, the less, lesser good teams in the Sigerson Cup but we actually got a couple of wins a couple of years there and uh, it just made it all the more special and you can kind of see that bond is there in the London team as well they're all living away from home they'd all prefer to be at home playing football but they're there together now they're training hard and when you do get wins at that it's very special like yep this weekend Murph is Kerry versus Cork in the Munster final is the big one and in some ways it's probably 
fact, everywhere, I guess, it's the only time we've seen two of the contenders for the All-Ireland face off against each other so far this season. Dun- Donegal took care of Tyrone a little bit earlier on, so this is yeah. a serious enough game. You know, there, there might be an element of June being, you know, a lot of it had been actually shadow boxing, and, you know, you look at Dublin and say, God, just how good are they? And you look at Mayo against Golan and Roscommon, and, you know, you say, wow, they, they look absolutely fantastic. But, well, we'll actually really get a true read this weekend of where Cork and Kerry are. And they've kind of been slipping down the, the pecking order. I think everyone's pecking order just because we haven't seen them so far this year. But, you know, there's still many people's quiet fancy, both teams, really. And I think it's going to be very instructive to see. All of a sudden, I think it does mean quite a bit again, the Munster, the Munster final, uh, given the fact that kind of the, all of the teams have put out their statements now. And it's up to Cork and Kerry to try. You forget and about Cork a little bit sometimes, even though you shouldn't, because I yeah, well, you do, but you look at their you look at their first fifteen, and then you look at their three forward substitutions uh, subs that they have on the on the bench, and you look deeper than that and deeper than that, and they just have footballers mm-hmm. coming out their ears, don't they? You know, they. Yeah, I think it's the it's good what Conor Coogan has done this year. The way he has brought in a few of the newer players, uh, that I thought the Cork team were getting a little bit stale. They had gone with the same fourteen, fifteen players to start for like two or three years there in a row, and I thought it was time for a change. And I think he has he has made them changes now with Damon Callan, Tom Clancy coming in, and Hurley at full forward. I think it is going to be an improved Cork effort this year. Like, and I really like the cut of some of them players. Like, I think Callan looks a really really good player. We played against him in a challenge match there in the year of Bridges for the Cork under twenty ones, and he looks really really good. Uh, so I know I expect. Cork to be able to have a really good shot this year and go a long way. Is that a fair point that Kieran makes that you can take a lot of the season so far with a pinch of salt, really, when we're looking at who's going to win in All Ireland? Do you actually need to see the big teams up against each other? Yeah, I think so. Like, I mean, people will look and they'll say, you know, say the Dublin game, they probably won't give me the chance because they'll say, okay, your provincials are going to be Dublin, Mayo, Donegal, and then this is the real one that there's actually going to be, say, major competition for. Um, I think Kerry have been going about their business, obviously, really, really quiet, you know, the old waiting the long grass job. And they've still got it. You know, I was kind of writing off Kerry this year saying, oh, no, that team's it. But then when you kind of look at the forward power that they have, you know, the O'Sullivan's, Galvin, Gooch, Donaghy, you just kind of say, right, there you go. Like, I mean, there's four to five of the best forwards in the country. So um, if they can tighten it up at the back, midfield might be a slight bit of a problem for them. But um, it'll be a fair battle. I haven't really seen much of Cork this year. So, and Cork are a bit of a, an unknown entity, I suppose, at this stage. Um, will they change their style from a kind of a running-based team that kind of look to run through you because really you come up against Donegal that won't work um, but all the same Dublin are kind of showing that pace is a, is a big big thing now so it's it's this is where we're starting to get into the the, the, the the interesting end of it as they say Carol you'll survive into the interesting end of it yourself with Roscommon if you can take Tyrone this weekend which is not an easy task yeah, yeah we got a very very tough throw obviously the one team you wanted to avoid and in fairness the uh the qualifiers haven't been pretty for us now over the last couple of years. Uh, we've got tough draws and every time we've come out of Connacht or whether we got through, actually when we got through Connacht, we got Cork the year they won in Ireland as well, so that haven't been easy on us. But I know we have recent experience of playing Tyrone. We played them two years ago in Crow Park and for 60 minutes a game it was very competitive and we met a couple of really bad errors towards the end and gave away a couple of easy goals. Last year in the Hyde, we we were playing against the wind the first half. We were level at half time. I think we were maybe a point behind, having made a 
loads of mistakes and kicked loads of wides and we were competitive in that game as well so I think, I think for us though in fairness coming in against Toronto we can't really be worrying too much about Toronto we made a lot of mistakes against Mayo we made a lot of mistakes over the last year or two against Toronto we have to really cut those out to have a chance and uh, I, I think if we can get a good performance in right yeah, and we take all our chances when they arise and we don't make the, the bad errors that give away goals and the likes then we definitely can be competitive on Saturday and win the game Okay well best of luck on Saturday Carl and thank you Anthony for coming in as well great stuff Hair dryers is a metaphor for the current of hot air generated by various blasts of temper the hairdryer with which uh, Alex Ferguson was famously associated. He threw a hairdryer, I think, at David Beckham. Oh, he threw a hairdryer at David Beckham. Uh, in the, is that right? No, 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 no. Second Captains at the Irish Times. Available Tuesdays on iTunes and irishtimes.com. Right, so from the lads there, Murph, Dave McGreevy of London doesn't seem to have given up hope that they can get Boris Johnson over, but his statements would appear to yeah. suggest otherwise. Uh, yeah, I actually have his statement here in front of me. Huge congratulations to the London team as they continue on with their historic march towards this year's Connacht, Connacht, as he'd probably pronounce it, Senior Football Championship Final. Uh, regardless of the result against Mayo, London can be proud of their mightily impressive achievements this year. They travelled to Castlebar on their momentous quest for victory with best wishes from me and all London fans. Go London! Uh, which is, you know, fine. Very Americanized, isn't it? Go London? Yeah, it should be up London. But I mean, we can't really expect Boris to know the ins and outs of... Even a come you know, on London would suffice, I would say. Yeah, I got a bit creeped out, actually, by the way, in which people seem to be clamouring for... Boris Johnson to reach out mm. from London and ruffle them on the head. Ah, uh, yeah, but we would sort of get there and then sneer him once he arrives. Don't worry about that, Ken. No, they would, no, absolutely not. If Boris Johnson arrived, he would be treated like royalty. If Boris Johnson was in Castlebar, he would be treated like royalty. I, <laughs> I would agree with that's that. That's the yeah. truth. No, I mean, obviously, to his face, we'd. Not obviously, to, not exactly, not to his yeah. face. Yeah, well, then we're, everyone's a winner then. We're polite to Boris and we get our kicks by talking about him behind his back. We don't have to worry about that for this weekend, though, Murph. What is coming up, aside from the Munster football final? You already mentioned that. Yeah, well, there's uh, four games in the qualifiers. Galway against Waterford, Clare against Leash, Derry against Down, and Roscommon against Tron. They're all being played on Saturday afternoon. Uh, and then, of course, in the hurling, it's the biggest qualifier in the history of the qualifiers in football or hurling, I think. Kilkenny against Tipperary, uh, 7 p.m. in Nolan Park. Uh, apparently, tickets are already pretty much gone. Uh, and it will be an amazing, uh, amazing atmosphere. Clare and Leash is the other qualifier. That's on as part of a doubleheader uh, with the Clare Leash football game. And there's the Leinster final as well. Uh, Galway against Dublin. Yeah, there's a novel in. pairing. Yeah, I'm telling you, London in the Connacht final, Galway in the Leinster final. Geography, obviously, not a major strong point. <laughs> yeah, uh, but uh, nevertheless, it will be. Uh, it should be a huge occasion, and you would expect that there would be quite a bit of Dublin support there as well. Murph, you're just buying time now because you have got apologies to make, and you're going to do so during this slot. So there's, there's no doubt, Ode, that the big story in the gardening world has been the frankly shocking state of the Wimbledon grass courts over the last uh, week or more. And it, it has. It has been terrible. And it was that... It's going to kill somebody. Or uh, well, at least somebody's knee. Well, it nearly killed Victoria Azarenka last week. Uh, even though we did all... Okay, I really sneered her uh, during the show last week. She fell over, did the splits, uh, and then squealed like a stuck pig for about three minutes and then bravely fought back to win well, her can match. We, can, can we hear this? Okay, yeah. Bear with me
Yeah, I can completely see why you're being sneery there. Uh, well, she I don't came know how you a woman in pain. She came back and won the game 6-1, 6-1, okay? So I said she may have been over-egging it slightly. Turns out she pulled out of the tournament the very yeah, next day. it's just day. not funny, Murph. Nothing so, about that was funny. Then after I'd sneered her non-injury that turned out to be quite a serious injury, I said she was only sticking around in the tournament to get hammered by Serena Williams anyway, and then Serena got knocked out as well. So gardening, obviously, I know plenty about. Everyone knows that. But tennis... Not so much. As for the gardening, well, as the world's <laughs> top celebrity gardening expert, I realise I've got to take my fair share of the blame here. But I can only do so much. Must I stand over every Wimbledon gardener, critique every bent elbow and well-applied garden implement to ensure a top-quality surface? I mean, aerate those lawns and we can still That doesn't have sound like an apology to me. No. That does not sound like an apology to Victoria Azarenka. more like he was advertising his own business. Yeah. Well, there's a little from Colin May and a little... You know, from Colin B. There was a really good piece, actually. Would you like to apologise directly to Victoria, who's a big second I have apologised. I said that I accused her of faking it, and she and she wasn't. So I'm sorry. And the very best of luck for returning Ken. from your serious injury. There was a really interesting piece about about the surfaces at Grand Slam tournaments by Brian Phillips and Grant. I don't know if you saw it. Or? I did, yeah. It's really interesting. I mean, I had no idea about this, but I'm clearly quite ignorant about tennis. Um, just the degree to which the they have very deliberately slowed down the surface at Wimbledon. Uh, you know, I mean, I saw a rally yesterday between uh, Djokovic and Haas that lasted 37 shots. I mean, it was insane. You would never have seen anything You're like this. You're a serve and volley man, in fairness. Well, I mean, look, I grew up in the, in the, in the days of serve and volley. I mean, now serve and volley is considered to be a sort of an old-fashioned, a courtly, medieval style of, style of play. You know, and it's got no place. But uh, I... I I think it's, it was a really interesting piece. It's worth uh, checking out. Just the, the essential point of it was that it's uh, lending itself to an increasing homogen, homogenization of styles across the same game. The same style of play will now work equally well or more close to equally well on every surface, whereas before you got specialists. I mean, clearly Nadal still seems to have a bit of an edge on clay, but previously the style of tennis that was effective on on different surfaces were, were radically different. The piece by Brian Phillips mm. on Grantland. Bloody good gardening as well. <laughs> More of this next week, Murph. <laughs> Murph's Garden. No, no, Murph's Garden will definitely not be back. I can, I can promise you that. But it's a hundred years of the Tour de France being celebrated this year. You're probably aware of it at this stage. Lots being said and written about the history of the race, some of the characters involved and all that kind of thing. This absolute gem of a clip has emerged this week via Channel 4. It's a report on the day 50 years ago that Shay Elliott became the first Irishman to win a stage of the race. It was part of ITN's roving reporter documentary series at the time. The reporter here is John Whale, and he's essentially trying to explain the whole concept of the tour to a somewhat bemused British audience. In a multitude of tongues, the radio commentators get busy beating up expectancy. At last, the moment has come. The stadium at Roubaix is on the point of enjoying its finest hour. So is Shay Elliott, a certain stage winner now, barring falls. He flashes round his couple of laps, expertly followed by the television camera, and happily acclaims his own victory. Over the air, excited commentators point out that Elliott rides for the same team as the two French favourites, Anquetil and Stablinski. Stablinski is lying well up in the other seven, only half a lap behind. He comes second. For a moment, Elliot seems to have disappeared until he comes into view again on the winner's platform, besieged by Pressman. A blonde closes in on the dishevelled Irishman. 
to the victor, the spoiled. Ostensibly, she wants to give him a bouquet. In fact, in her shy way, she's advertising men's trousers. But now the even more valued spoils the famous yellow jersey, which goes to the overall winner so far, the rider who's wasted least time on the journey. This is often not the same man as the day's winner, but today it is. Hygiene note, it's a different jersey every day. I fought my way onto the winner's rostrum to ask Elliot how tough the race was. It's uh, very, very tough. It's only the start. There's another 19 days. It'll be very, very hard. What are your chances, would you say? Uh, to win the tour. I don't think I have a much chance of winning the tour, but I'm very happy to have taken this journey today because uh, it's not often that an Irishman, uh, Tom Simpson, took the, Mayo, took the jersey last year. And uh, I'm very happy for Ireland and everything. But even after your magnificent race today, you don't think you've got a chance of winning? Well, I try my best, but uh, it's hard to say. There's another 19 days left. Uh, you, tell me, how do you eat on the tour? We eat... Uh, there's cake. We take cakes in the morning and we take them in our pockets and we eat during the race. You eat as you yeah. go. Do you go flat out all the time? Not all the time, but... To win a race, you have to go flat out. Thank you very, very much. Where we handle that with quite a deal of aplomb. Every mm. sportsman's worst nightmare, they achieve some great feat of endurance in this case, and they're immediately asked the really most basic questions mm. about their sport. So it's, it's This all it's seems very exciting. What's going on? We should mention that yellow jersey, which was accepted by Shay Elliott there, was... It's an actual Aaron sweater. Oh, it's incredible. <laughs> but a very tight Aaron sweater that they had to, they had to yank his arm through it, much like a baby. It's a chunky knit. Uh, sweater mm. that they that they gave him and uh, looked like exactly the last thing that you would want to put on in that kind of condition after uh, racing a stage of the Tour de France. We have that for you on Twitter and Facebook at Second Captains and Facebook.com forward slash Second Captains if you want to have a look at it. It's about a 12 minute clip altogether. Some extraordinary stuff in there aside from what we just played you there. But we're going back a little further than Shay Elliott's time now to bring you the story of Gino Bartali, the Italian cyclist who holds a record for the longest time span between Tour de France victories. He won it for the first time in 1938 and again in a comeback in 1948. But it's what he did in the war years in between those victories that actually sets him apart here. Eileen McConnell is the author of a book about the man called Road to Valor, and she joins me now. Eileen, thanks so much for talking to us. There's so much history around this race, as we've alluded to a little bit there. What is it about Gino Bartali that appealed to you so much that you went and actually wrote a book about him? Gino Bartali, he captured our interest because he was both an incredible cycling hero. He uh, won the Tour de France twice in 1938 and then again in 1948, so before and after World War II. But what interested us was that he was this amazing sports hero, but that also during the war, um, he'd helped the Jewish community in Italy. So he had this combination of a sports legend plus a humanitarian, and that sort of drew us into the topic. Tell us a little bit maybe about the sports legend first. You said he won his first Tour de France before the, probably just before the outbreak of the Second World War. That's right. He won in 1938, and this is at a time that Mussolini was rising to power, and um, he had to negotiate it. You know, basically, he wasn't supportive of Mussolini's regiment, but Mussolini at the time... Uh, controlled much of the sports scene in Italy. And so um, he won at this time, and uh, Mussolini tried to, in many ways, use him as a propaganda tool, which he was not very comfortable with. Um, then came World War II. He served uh, in the Italian army early on and then actually um, served in the resistance, helping the um, basically the Jewish community as they were trying to flee Italy and then came back after World War II for the second Tour victory in '48 at a time when most people had written him off because he was 
34 years old, which, if you can believe it, is considered a senior citizen uh, or a geriatric for for most tour winners. I'm quite interested in that relationship, Bailey, that you talk about there between the uh, top sportsman, in this case, uh, Gino Bartali, and Benito Mussolini, not a, a, an easy guy to stand up to in those times. It sounded like, I don't know if he directly stood up to him by what you talk about, but certainly he didn't bow down to him. No, he didn't. And it, um, he had to be careful because there were examples of athletes who had um, very publicly spoken out against Mussolini. There was a, a famous cyclist who'd done so, and then he was mysteriously found killed at the side of a road. Um, and you, know, you have to be careful about being too vocal against the fascists. But he did do several things that um, you know would have angered Mussolini, where it was expected at the time, for instance, that if you you know won a big sports match, that you would sort of thank uh, Mussolini in your you know, acceptance speech. And Bartoli, he wouldn't do that. He sort of he kind of made a statement by the things that he didn't say, if that makes sense. Absolutely. Did this was taken a step further, as you allude to there it, during the course of the war, he began to help out Jewish families in Italy. How did that actually come about? How did he end up doing that? It's a good question. And uh, Bartoli became involved in the resistance effort in Italy um, in two ways. Uh, First, he was part of a network um, where he helped ferry false identity documents uh, actually hidden in the frame of his bicycle. And that came about because a a mentor of his, who was a cardinal in Florence, um, was helping the Jewish community. They at this point, after the Nazis came in, this is sort of fall of 1943, um, you, if you had an identity card or you know, a passport or what have you that said that you were Jewish, then you could be sent away. And so many of the Jews in Italy at the time were desperate to get um, identity cards that just said that they were Italian so that they wouldn't be kind of potentially chased away. And so Bartoli, because he was known as a famous cyclist by this point, he'd already you know, won the tour once. He had a, a certain freedom and liberty to move and cycle around the countryside at a time when there were lots of soldiers. Um, these would be both Nazis and fascists. But because several of these soldiers would have also been sports fans before the war, he was sort of a, a known face, so he had a good excuse when he was sort of cycling around as to why he was out on the roads when regular citizens could not be. Um, you know, he was a, a national hero. He was out training, and, you know, people accepted that. Um, so that was the first way that he helped the resistance effort was literally hiding these documents in the frame of his bike that he then ferried throughout Tuscany and uh, the neighboring region of Umbria. Um, and then the second way, he actually sheltered a family, uh, a Jewish family of four in an apartment that he owned uh, because Bartoli was quite successful already at this time. He had a few properties and a family, um, the father had been a friend of his, sort of turned to him when the situation became very difficult and Bartley sheltered that family. That's incredible. So did you get to speak to any of these people? Were there any survivors at this point that you were able to chat to in researching the book? Uh, speaking with the survivors was one of the you know, most amazing parts of working on this book. We were able to speak with um, the last remaining family member of this family I mentioned who was sheltered. Um, he was you know, kind of seven, eight years old at the time when Bartley uh, hid his family during World War II, and we kind of tracked him down and found him. He now lives in uh, Tel Aviv in Israel, and, um, you know, it really makes a difference when you can chat with, you know, someone whose life was dramatically impacted, you know, by someone else's to kind of it helped us put a human face on the story um, in terms of, you know, what it was like to live in Italy, you know, when the laws changed sort of overnight and, um, you know, what it was, you know, the terror that they lived with uh, throughout the war, you know, being afraid of capture and then the impact that Bartley had, you know, saving, effectively saving, you know, their lives. Um, and we were also able to talk to uh, people who'd seen 
uh, Bartoli on some of the when he was missions when he was ferrying documents in his bicycle and having those sort of eyewitnesses, you know, really helped bring the story to life because it was um, 100% nonfiction, so you know, all based on fact. But when you have that sort of eyewitness account, you can still write about it in an exciting manner. Yeah, absolutely. And it's kind of interesting that it doesn't really get much more direct in terms of a link between sport and the heroism he showed than the fact that he was actually using his bicycle to ferry. So it was as literal as that. He would take the parts of documents and bits that were needed to make up these IDs, stick them within his bike and cycle them around the country to Jewish families. That's right. So they would literally pop off the seat of his bicycle, kind of roll them up in a little kind of scroll type of shape, pop them in and then, you know, deliver them, whether, you know, to Florence or their uh, nearby town of Assisi was actually where there was a a document maker, a printer who was sort of uh, making a lot of these documents so he could bring whether photos or the different components of these ID documents to Assisi, they'd be made into the actual kind of ID cards and then Bartley would cycle off and, you know, bring them to the various Jewish families that were hiding in a variety of places throughout the countryside, some of them in kind of convents, some of them in monasteries, some of them with private families, but all of them, um, you know, needed these identity cards because they, well, they kind of linked to things such as ration cards, so it was their, you know, uh, their key to getting any sort of food or supplies, but most importantly, being able to move in public in any way. I did you get any sense of the mindset that drove Bartali at this point in his life? Was it... Did he, was he thinking or do we know if he was thinking look even if I am caught doing all of this I'm a big sportsman I'm famous I'll probably get a slap on the wrist or was he genuinely running a real risk of imprisonment or worse I think he was running a real risk of imprisonment or, or worse and because when you look at some of the other um, cyclists well I mentioned there's a cyclist who spoke out against Mussolini who was killed you know there's really a sense at the time that you know there wasn't um, anyone who is really immune to whether the fascists or the, the Nazis, there wasn't, um, you know, anyone who could sort of, if is chaotic enough as well, so there wasn't anyone if they kind of had decided that you were an enemy of the state that was really, you know, entirely safe, it, you know, it seemed at the time. Um, so, you know, he did take a great risk, and, you know, even there are people that kind of even for something as little as violating curfew, which he sometimes would because he'd be out bicycling after dark, you know, people who violated curfew were imprisoned for up, you know, up to a few years. And, you know, if you're doing something much worse, like helping declared enemies of the state, which at the time, that's how they'd identified the Jewish community. Uh, people were tortured, people were killed. So, you know, it was a, a very real risk. Um, and I think, you know, one that he didn't take lightly. He had a, a wife, he had a young son. But I think the alternative was sort of to stand by and watch, you know, the country that he'd loved, Italy, kind of turn into this monstrous place that was persecuting many, you know, people, Italians that he, you know, counted as friends. So I think when weighing that hard decision, you know, he took the risky the risky option to step up and help. After all of this, as you say, he then comes back and wins another Tour de France 10 years after his first one. So he's getting old in sporting terms with this age of 34 years of age. What kind of, did that have any sort of an impact on the country itself, on Italian people? The 48 win was, uh, had a tremendous impact as, the, um, the context at the time, the country is still relatively unstable after the war. They're, you know, kind of dealing with uh, economic issues after the war, large-scale sort of unemployment. You know, the, the country was in a lot of unrest. And one further event that actually made it more unstable, particularly during the tour, was that uh, midway through the tour, at this point, Bartolese wasn't doing very well. And uh, many people had kind of written him off. He was an old man. They called him and, you know, kind of, he should give way to the new generation of cyclists. But midway through the tour, 
there was an assassination attempt back in Italy where basically um, someone tried to assassinate Italy's second most prominent politician at the time. Given the instability in the country generally, this sort of set off, you know, what many felt like was a, you know, bordering on a revolution. There's certainly kind of riots and protests in the street. And it's sort of at this dramatic moment that Bartoli is in France, not doing very well at the tour, where the Italian prime minister kind of calls him up and says, you know, Bartoli, how, you know, how's it going? Bartoli reports, unfortunately, not so well yet, you know, and he says, you know, could you do your best to win? You know, Italy needs this win right now. It's sort of in a state of chaos. Um, and then Bartley manages to make a very dramatic comeback the following day. And, you know, as a result of, um, you know, I think the, his eventual win, you know, and, um, you know, and the fact that the politician, I think, who was shot did survive, but the combination sort of, um, and certainly his win helped put the country in a much better mood and helped unite, unite people who had, you know, days before been at each other's throats. Yeah, it's amazing stuff. And it's great that you got to speak to actual eyewitnesses, as you say. What about the man himself? He lived into old age. Did he, did, did he leave much in the way of explanation of uh, motives? Was he the kind of guy to, to big himself up in later years about what he had done in, these, in his early life? Ed, interestingly, it was quite the opposite, at least in terms of the, the wartime work he had done. He had left detailed um, autobiographies. He had three of them, actually, about his cycling. So there's a, a tremendous amount of detail that, you know, gave insight into the man in terms of um, his focus and dedication to, to sport. And, you know, he even talked about his family as well. But he really didn't talk about the work that he'd done during the war until very late in life. And um, even then, he spoke about it sparingly with friends and family. And I think part of the reason was, as he explained it, was there have been many, many people, many ordinary people who had risked their lives during World War II, and he knew that he was already, you know, a big name in Italian society. So that he was worried that if it became known that he played a role as well, that he'd be, uh, he'd overshadow or dwarf some of the other regular people who had also, you know, gone to great risks. Mm. And you know, in, in fact, you know, many people were killed for you know the work that they'd done during the war. So I think. You know, he both felt lucky to have survived but didn't want to um, toot his own horn, so to speak. Well, it's an absolutely wonderful story. Road to Valor is the name of the book. It is now out in paperback. Eileen McConnell, co-author of the book. Thanks so much for taking us through that today. Thank you so much. It's been a delight. Absolutely wonderful story there. I hope you enjoyed that. We didn't even get a chance to talk about his great rival, Bartoli's great rival, Fausto Coppi, Ken, mm-hmm. who even as far back as the 1940s, 1950s, was just, having, just dabbling in a few... Illicit substances. Well, it was the golden they weren't, age. They weren't illicit at the time, indeed. Performance-enhancing drugs weren't actually banned at this stage. But this was there was this great rivalry between the, uh, the two cyclists, and they were described like any of these rivalries. Obviously, the more polar opposite you can make the two, the better. And in when it came to the bit of cheating here, it seems like Copy was basically the guy who did a little bit more. But he was asked once about using amphetamines, and he said, "Yes, I use them, but only when necessary." And then he was asked, well, how necessary is it? And he said, well, almost all the time, yeah. I need to use these things. But you, you used the word cheating, but it's how is it cheating if it's simply Incorrect. science? That's exactly, yeah. yeah. You know, and that was the golden age, as, as it was for so many technologies. You know, the Second World War was a powerful spur to technological development, including in the field of um, chemicals that made you stay awake for three days in a row. We talked about David Moyes earlier on trying to find his feet at mm. Old Trafford. One of the things he's going to have to sort out is Wayne Rooney's future. This has been hovering over him ever since he started, but are there indications that uh, things might be made easy for him if Rooney wants to move on? Well, I think this is this is going to come to a head now pretty soon, and the reports at the moment are, are all seeming to suggest that Rooney has decided he's, he's out of there. He'd rather work with 
somebody else. Maybe Jose Mourinho would be a more interesting guy to work with than David. He's already had the privilege of working with David Moyes. So, uh, and it didn't really go that well at the time, if you recall. Things things ended somewhat acrimoniously. So, uh, this is going to come to a halt. What, what we've actually seen with Rooney over the last couple of days is another example of this awful intrusion into his life. And it's not even just the press to blame, although they spread the word. It's it's really just the ordinary people who he encounters in his everyday life who then can't wait to run and become tattletales. And I don't know how much money they're getting for it. Maybe they're just doing it in order that people know that they once met, met Wayne Rooney or that, uh, you know, at Glastonbury, there he was at Glastonbury, and uh, they took an order for nearly £2,000 worth of vodka and pot noodles for Wayne Rooney <laughs> at Glastonbury. And you're left to sort of think, well, you know, and... and uh, he was sharing out some of this vodka and pot. Well, look, nobody knows. All we know is, and we don't know the proportion, but I'd say a lot of Manchester United fans, those who want really to stay anywhere, are looking at it and thinking, I hope at least 95% of that £2,000 was on vodka and mixers because, you know, that's a lot of noodles. We're talking it about is, a lot of noodles. It is. But even if it was 95% on vodka and mixers, that's still nearly 10 kilograms of pot noodles. <laughs> is that is that a personal use? <laughs> Yeah, is that, is that, I mean, no, you got to be sharing that out. I mean, well, how much is in a regular pot noodle? Ninety grams. Ninety grams. Yeah, they cost a pound. A pound at right, the festival. Okay. Uh, no, he had to. He had to have them shipped in. And of course, there was all these comments like, "Oh, I would have thought a football player would be eating more healthy food than that." And you're thinking, what kind of a person does this? Literally, what kind of a person? It was on a. It was on like a southwestern England newswire. This story had emerged that Wayne Rooney and the you know, possibly up to 100 kilograms of pot noodles story. You know, we, I mean, it was, just, it's, just, it's just awful. I mean, there was, a, there was footage of Andy Carroll in Las Vegas that someone had taken where he's dancing, wearing a giant chipmunk suit. He's, he's got a chipmunk head, which is almost as big as, as his torso again, sort of balanced precariously on his shoulders. It falls off a couple of times. He's which, dan- mm? which chipmunk? Well, they're, they're kind of, they're quite the similar. They're quite, Theodore? Quite similar look, but the point is, there's there's another spy in the crowd. Thinking, oh, there's Andy Carroll. You know, I'm going to spy him. This is awful. You know, and this this was happening in East Germany. It made everybody really unhappy. Sorry, was it a fancy dress that he was at, or was, did he just happen to decide he'll dress up himself as a chipmunk? Well, th- there was footage of Carroll first of all sitting on someone's shoulders, just generally having a having a pretty awesome time listening to the electronic dance music that's. Uh, Taken America by storm twenty years after it took the rest of the world by storm. But there, he, there he is in his chipmunk outfit. Then you know, there's two separate videos. So this person obviously stalked him for a while. You know, I just think it's it's awful. This is what we've come to uh, as a society. We are joined by Tim Vickery to talk uh, about the fairly thrilling climax of the Confederations Cup, uh, and particularly with a look. Uh, I forward really I suppose Tim to the World Cup itself because we know about all the issues happening off the pitch in Brazil over the last few weeks but in terms of in football terms really I guess you would say it couldn't have gone better Yeah and in football terms bizarrely enough job done for FIFA as well because they're absolutely delighted with the TV ratings Um, they're saying it was the most successful Confederations Cup that there's been for Brazil well job done but perhaps job done a little bit too well you know you maybe get the feeling that uh, if Scolari could have had all of his wishes come true, they might have won by a single goal rather than so convincingly because uh, Brazil, in a way, I think, become victims of their own success now. Um, this is a country of very extreme emotions in terms of football. And a, a month ago, they wouldn't have given their, their, their national team house room. Now there'll be plenty of people out there in the streets who think the team will be unstoppable and that the World Cup next year will be a formality. So that's a problem now for Scolari. He's a kind of victim of his own success. 
and he'll have to play down expectations a little bit. I was interested to see Carlos Alberto Pereira sitting uh, at Scolari's side. So Brazil are going to have two World Cup winning coaches on their bench uh, at the World Cup. And usually guys uh, who have been that successful tend to have big egos, don't necessarily want to work together. Um, when was it that Scolari brought in Pereira? What is his exact role and how does that relationship between them work? They were brought in right from the start when Scolari was appointed uh, towards the end of last year. Uh, and uh, there's no doubt about it whatsoever. Scolari is the coach. Pajera is there to, to be his administrator, to be his sounding board. And uh, the good thing, I think, about the relationship is they said from day one, we don't agree on everything. Um, but uh, Scolari is the one who makes the decisions. And I think that's positive. I think it's positive that Scolari is pressed by someone of a considerable CV in his own right who uh, isn't just going to be his yes-man. And uh, I think that's probably a, a positive relationship. Although so far, I think Scolari will certainly be, be, uh, can take a, take a lot of the credit. Um, I, I think we should pay some tribute to his predecessor, Mano Menezes, who kind of got a bad run. Uh, uh, you know, I mean, Menezes took over the national team at the end of the last World Cup at a time when they needed rebuilding. Um, he was told that uh, they were going to be patient with results. Um, they were for a while, and then just when he started to, uh, he, he seems to be on the right track, he was sacked. But he has a participation in this as well, I think, for two reasons. Number one is that uh, most of these players he blooded um, from obvious choices like Neymar to perhaps less obvious choices like, uh, and Oscar wasn't an obvious choice to be blooded, really, nor was, say, David Luiz. Even Luis Gustavo was a player first picked by, by Menezes. And also, the pressure marking, Brazil pressing in the opponent, opponent's half of the field, that's something that's relatively new for them, and, and that's something that Mano Menezes has introduced, and it's brought them goals, even, even under the, the Scolari regime. So I think uh, part of this title does, uh, uh, does, does go to, to Mano Menezes, although I think Scolari has every reason to be very, very happy with uh, the work that he's done, and it, on a number of levels. And he is a great group former, which makes him a wonderful tournament coach. And I think we've seen the atmosphere in, in, in the Brazil camp spectacular on Scolari with his kind of father figure charisma. He knows how to, uh, how to uh, take advantage of the political moment in Brazil to forge that bond between the team and the terraces. He did that very well. But also just in, 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 in tactical, in, in human resources terms, if you like, if you look down that side, the spine of the side, it was Scolari's decision, um, which was no, by no means seen as, a, as, as cut and dried uh, when he came back to, to, to recall Julio Cesar you know, being relegated with Queen's Park Rangers as his first choice goalkeeper. It was Scolari's choice to, to bring back the figure of the holding midfielder. And in the end, he went with Luis Gustavo, and that worked for him very well. And it was Scolari's choice to reinstate the figure of the centre-forward. Brazil were playing without a specialist centre-forward. So Scolari brought back a centre-forward, and he brought back Fregi, and, and that, that's worked out very well for him uh, also. So I think Scolari has a lot of reasons to be very pleased with himself. Tim, can you know, just pick up on one part of what you said there, and that is the way that Scolari used the political situation to forge a bond between the players on the pitch and the fans in the terraces. Specifically, how did he do that? Well, he, he, he didn't want to uh, commit himself too much politically. But he just made the right noises in, in, in the kind of like get behind the team 
if you're getting behind the team, you're also getting behind what the country is trying to do type thing. Um, it, it's probably, it probably didn't need too much doing. I mean, it, was, it, was, it was kind of there anyway. Um, but there were, certainly from the second game onwards, this really charged atmosphere in the stadium where, you know, after the music for the national anthem finished, the crowd kept on singing a cappella. And, and that's something which clearly, really, really inspired the Brazil team. Um, certainly in three of those four games where it happened, well, they, they, they came out of the blocks very, very quickly, which were Mexico, Italy, and then the final uh, against Spain. The exception was the semi-final against Uruguay, when because the Confederations Cup has this uh, this thing of um, you jump straight from the group phase to a semi-final, which in Brazil's case was a huge jump, you know, because you know, Brazil's place in the uh, the, the semi-finals was, was assured relatively early. Uh, and so suddenly you go from pressure off to pressure on. And uh, you just got a feeling there in that semi-final against Uruguay that when Brazil were looking around the stadium, um, rather than being inspired by the people on that occasion, it was a kind of thing of looking around and thinking, my God, we can't let all of these people down. Uh, and uh, maybe that has more to do with the kind of pressure they'll be under this time next year than uh, the kind of romp which uh, the final turned out to be against Spain. Now, Tim, uh, this, I suppose, uh, w- this tournament will mark the emergence of Neymar as a, as a true international superstar. I mean, this is no news to people in Brazil how just how good he is. But to see him scoring goals of the quality that he scored, you know, each one better than the last, um, I, I, I don't think anyone could dispute that this is a phenomenal, phenomenal talent. Now, looking at his record... It's absolutely ridiculous. Um, you know, the statistics that he's already produced in his career uh, are almost beyond belief. The, the goal in the final was his 160th goal for Santos and Brazil. I mean, I think Ronaldo at, around the same, at the same age had about 50. Cristiano Ronaldo, I mean, about 50. Leon Messi, you know, fewer than 60 goals at the same age. Even Romario, who, was, who, who played in Brazil until he was about the same age as Neymar is now, only had about half as many goals as Neymar has managed to score. Can you try and put that into some kind of context for us in, in terms of, is this, uh, I mean, are these figures really as good as they sound? Or, or, you know, what should we know about the level that he's been, uh, that he's been scoring these goals? Uh, you know, what kind of, uh, you know, how should we understand that number of 160? Well, going into this tournament, and, um, he, he, he did have the label of a little bit of a rabbit killer. And he is just, a, a, as well as being, a wonderfully talented player, and the comparison I've often made is with is with a young George Best, um, just with his, the balance and his capacity to improvise at pace. But he's also off either foot, just a magnificent finisher, a magnificent finisher. But certainly going into this tournament, there was the idea that he's a rabbit killer. He's an accumulator of of fantastic goals, but sometimes in in, in the relatively easy matches, he hadn't done it for Brazil against any of the heavyweight opponents. Uh, and uh, I think you can probably scratch that one now because there was pressure on him in the, in this uh, this Confederations Cup, and it went it just went his way right from the start, didn't it? With that first shot against Japan, a glorious finish. And if anything, I think Scolari will perhaps be a little bit worried that it went just too well for him, uh, his team, and and for Neymar. That expect, expectations now will be that just that little bit too high. And that one of Scolari's tasks now will be playing down expectations because this was almost Brazil, especially in that final, this was almost Brazil in a state of grace. Just everything went for them. You know, the, that, that moment where David Luiz 
cleared the ball miraculously off the line and, and from 1-1 it's suddenly 2-0 with that superb Neymar goal now Julius Sears are so full of confidence and he just seems to be filling the entire goal uh, and uh, you know, I think that that will be a worry from for, for, with, with Scalardi that that expectations will now be so high. You can perhaps make a, a bit of a parallel with the Confederations Cup in 2005, when in in the final against they played Argentina, who were under strength, also physically on their knees. Their semi-final had gone to 120 minutes and penalties, and they still came out and and and, and looked to, to attack Brazil, and Brazil just took them apart on the counter-attack. And that kind of created the impression, it was 4-1, that created the impression in Brazil that the magic quartet, and it was just a case of turning up next year and FIFA would have to hand over the trophy. And that game was so different from what the World Cup was going to be. And it was obvious, as soon as the World Cup started in 2006, the Brazil team was top-heavy and not particularly good at dealing with sides who didn't give them a counter-attack. And Brazil, in some ways now, the victims of their own success because opponents... Now we'll take them very, very seriously indeed. People will study them. People will, will try and negate their, 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 uh, their, their speed, their ability on the counter-attack. Uh, and uh, so one consequence of this Confederations Cup win is that Brazil have probably made things harder for themselves this time next year. Tim, right at the very start, you said that FIFA were delighted with the TV ratings for this. I think it's been a, a really good tournament, a lot of uh, really memorable matches. And, it, you know, when you consider, uh, first of all, that and then... The protests that have been happening, um, you know, part, part of which is, has to do with the cost of the World Cup and the objection to, to spending on that when there are more pressing priorities in Brazilian society. Is, has this really been a, an eloquent argument for smaller tournaments? I mean, you get higher quality games. You don't have as many meaningless games between teams that everybody knows have no chance of, of uh, you know, actually contending for the title. Um, and also, maybe it reduces the cost of events that have become bloated beyond... Uh, reason. Maybe it's time we came to our senses and trimmed the size of these tournaments because a bigger tournament isn't necessarily a better one. I think you've, you've got a point, but it's very, very hard to see how that's going to happen. You know, it's hard to see yeah, um, turkeys voting for Christmas in terms of, uh, you know, we're going to get around the table and, and, and vote to give ourselves less chance of getting to the World Cup. So uh, you, you may well have a point, but uh, I think uh, your wish is unlikely to come true. All right, Tim Vickery, brilliant stuff. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Interesting description of Neymar there, Ken, as a rabbit killer, at least before this tournament. That's how he was perceived. Fernando Torres has killed a few more rabbits during the Confederations <laughs> Cup, and he walks away with another Golden Shoe Award. Oh, Fernando Torres. And, and everybody felt as delighted for Fernando Torres as Fernando Torres looked to be himself with his Golden Shoe, uh, which he won because he scored four goals against Tahiti and one against Nigeria, which in fairness was a very good goal, the diving header, and had a single assist in the tournament, uh, which was a record that was equal with Fred, who also scored five and had one assist. But Fernando Torres played for far fewer minutes than Fred, you see. So he won the gold boot, Fred the silver, and Neymar the bronze boot for only scoring the four goals. This is the second... He won it at the Euros as well. This is supposed to be a player whose career has nosedived, yet he's the leading scorer at all the international tournaments. Since his career nosedived, he's won the World Cup, He's won the European uh, Championships. He's been the top scorer at the European Championships and the Confederations Cup. Uh, he's won the Champions League as well. So, so he's nosediving his way through unprecedented success. Essentially. It's, it's true. Uh, and, you know, everybody knows that he's not half the player he was. And I think he's, he's one of the biggest problems that the Spain team has. I mean, watching the game against Brazil, you never got the impression he was ever going to get the better of David Luiz or Thiago Silva. 
Um, he just doesn't really give you that confidence anymore, regardless of his golden boot, which you know, people understand what that golden boot's about. That's why he couldn't look proud of it. I mean, he was standing there, his cheeks are burning with hot shame yeah. as he holds his golden boot, which is a, just a bizarre situation for anyone to be in. I do think, though, he's one of the players that Spain need to change. Give us a quick hit of Joe Kinnear news, Ken. We're nearing the end of the program. Yeah. Well, just very briefly on Joe Kinnear, he has done another interview in which he says he reckons that he's head and shoulders above every other director of football in the league. Uh, this is because he uh, is a manager. He used to be a manager, good manager, one manager of the year. He mentions only once this time. He says he won manager of the year. He doesn't specify a number this time. Uh, he, he was a player with Tottenham. And essentially, look at the look at the experience. Who could possibly be better than me? To which you think, well, who are the other directors of football in the Premier League? And you immediately wondered, has Joe Kinnear ever heard of Chiki Bagheerstein? who was a member of the Barcelona Dream Team that won four league titles. He won four league titles. He won the Champions League. And he was then the director of football in the Barcelona team in the Juan Laporta era when they established themselves as possibly the greatest club side of all time. So, Who do you think is more likely to have heard of the other, Tiki Begurastad or Joe Kinnear? That's actually a pretty difficult question. I think it's very unlikely that either has heard of the other. You have an email into editor at secondcaptains.com there. Yeah, well, last week during our uh, emigrant shoutouts, I may have disrespected a few lads on their J1 in Ocean City in Maryland. Now, I said it wasn't the most glamorous place in the world, uh, but they actually got in touch with me immediately on Twitter and said that I didn't have a clue and that I was basically a sad old man. Uh, And then I got this email from another uh, former resident of Ocean City, Sean Kelly. So, Murph, thought you were very hard on those J1 lads in Ocean City. I spent my J1 summer 20 years ago there. Fair enough, it's not New York, but it's got a great 10-mile beach and plenty of great bars that accept use-it cards as ID. Well, at least they did in 1993. I had a brilliant summer over there. I don't think we managed to get to work at Pizza Hut on time once, despite living about 300 metres from it. I think the lads last week were in uh, Subway. Uh, I met a lad from Washington, D.C. that summer, kept in touch over the years, and then when I was visiting D.C. in 2005, he brought me to a Washington Nationals baseball game, and I met my wife at the game. We moved over here last year, and I'm now living just outside D.C. in Alexandria, Virginia, uh, we have, I think, the only three toddlers in the area running around with Hurleys, rugby balls dressed in various Irish and Dublin jerseys. I haven't managed to get back to Ocean City yet, but it's on the agenda. So maybe, you know, maybe I could, I could go to Ocean City with this man since it appears to be the epicentre of world culture and arts. Let's talk rugby now ahead of the Lions. Third and final decisive test on Saturday morning. The Lions have Trevor Hogan and Shane Horgan. And the big news, Trevor, is that James Horwell, well, his little misdemeanour, Alleged misdemeanor got past the referee and the touch judges. One commission found him not guilty. Another top legal mind has now found him not guilty again. Essentially, they've turned down the IRB's appeal of the first decision. I think we can be pretty sure now he is in the clear. He is going to play. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a massive boost for Australia. Just watching back the match again. I mean, Horwell, he has a massive influence for for Australia. Just his physical presence in, in things like malls and 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 just in defensive lineouts. Uh, he's a strong carrier as well, and, and I don't think Australia could afford to have lost him because they've already lost another Tamani, another second row, and they, they don't really have the depth in, the, in that position. Uh, the, the ruling is interesting. All the IRB guy could apparently go on was if the previous judgment had been wrong in any way, so he couldn't really look at the, the incident on its own. Okay, so he so, wasn't looking at it fresh. He was yeah. just, was there an error in the decision-making it, exactly. the last time? So... You know, it was it was probably going into a very minute detail of that original route. People ruling, are a little so. bit surprised because, and you know, then on all the legal ins and outs, it was assumed that if the IRB were going to go to the effort of appealing the decision, that they must have been fairly confident that 
it was that their appeal would be upheld, but it wasn't. I think the IRB, even their statement afterwards, was saying we're happy that we did this because it has to look right, you know, it has to because if anything going near the head, we want to make sure everything. There's no there's no doubts about it. But you know, to be honest, anyone looking at it, and if you just look at it in the context of the game, and I think that's possibly what the the original guy didn't do. It was the first couple of minutes. It was Horwell coming up. He came in with a swinging arm on top of Alan Jones in, in the first start in the start of it. And then just follow through with a little bit of a cheeky, cheeky boot to the side of the head. That's in my in my view. And if you see it in, the, in that context, I don't think it's, it's easy. It's it's one of those ones where he's losing balance. But listen, there's no point in going on about uh, you know uh, the U.S. Supreme Court. I mean, you know, <laughs> have we actually exhausted every single? possible line of inquiry here that's what I'm concerned about it's funny how the Lions were clearly incensed by it Brian O'Driscoll himself actually said that he saw so him being interviewed by Jason Robinson for one of these HSBC sort of sponsored Lions bits on the on their official website and O'Driscoll said look he's a lucky boy this is after he uh, initially was cleared the first time Shane is it the kind of thing that both squads will be able to put to bed at this stage of the week do you think yeah, I would have said the the Lions wouldn't have expected that to be overturned anyway. Um, as Trevor pointed out there, um, it was a very high-ranking QC, did the original um, uh, hearing apparently, and um, for it to be overturned, his decision would have had to be proved to be manifestly wrong, which would have been quite difficult. And, and I think you've got two factions of the IRB sort of would be, one would be overruling other, one fighting against the other. Now this came in, off the basis of of trouble a few years ago, I think with with um, Schlock Berger and, and possibly uh, a uh, a decision that was given against him that wasn't as long as people wanted for gouging against uh, Luke Fitzgerald, but it certainly seems to to they have to, seem to overegg the pudding a little bit. The decision was made. The basis for the decision was fairly clear, and once that was made, it was going to be very hard to prove that manifestly wrong. So it seemed like a little bit of a, a shot in the dark by IRB and I don't know how much benefit it's really served you know Trevor was talking there Shane just about the importance of Horwell to the team he's the captain he also in some ways he strikes you maybe as more of a South African style forward there's a real abrasiveness and ruggedness to his play maybe that not you wouldn't necessarily associate with all the Australians would you see him as quite a vital cog in the team Ah, uh, yeah he certainly is he, he's a real uh, leader but uh, not just from you know um, to motivate his players by what he says, but I think you know on the field what he does, the way he carries the ball, the amount of touches that he wants to get, and as you rightly said, there the physical nature of his game. He's a big man. He's a big solid lump, and he really uses that. I, you know, he probably doesn't have the subtlety of some of the past um, Aussie second rows that we've seen. He doesn't really have that to his game, but what he does is he has a brutality that is very often uh, what you need, and uh, it's. He also, I think, adds to the scrummage, and, and Trevor will probably be able to expand on this a bit better, but their their scrummage, the Aussie scrummage was working so well at the weekend, uh, apart from a couple of blips here and there, much stronger than we thought maybe at the start of the um, at the the start of the tour, and it's become a really positive tool for them. And I think, you know, having two second rows that work very hard, along with the back row that stays down and pushes right the way through, and they engage a very early hit as well. They're very, uh, very snappy on the hit. Um, that's that's really been something that nobody expected from this Aussie team. They didn't expect them to be able to keep compete at scrum time, and they, in general, they have been. 
yeah, that's a great point, Shane. Especially he's on the tight head side of scrum. He uh, Horwell's behind Ben Alexander there, which is the side that's really causing the Lions' problem. There, Vunapolo's under massive pressure. In fairness to Vunapolo, he did come back at times, and the Lions might might have a case. Some of the some of the scrums were possibly harsh enough calls, but it's fairly clear that that the tight head side is the one that's causing the problems, and that's also the side. Vunapolo's side is where Paul O'Connell's gone and he's been a huge loss in terms of scrummaging as well and you know I remember Paul O'Connell used to say and this is something that, that highlights the importance of Horwell the most important marker in, in terms of a forward uh, start, start to the game is, the, is in the mall and you see what uh, you know you know the opposition if they're ready for it if they're up for it by you know that close contact in the mall and you can if there's someone getting through coming through with an elbow coming through you can just feel that presence there and Horwell definitely has that you can see he came through in one mall in the early in the second half and he wrapped up Parling and they, they choked him up and they turned, got a scrum off the back of it those small little battles they tell you what the opposition's like whether they're hard whether they're not really up for it or whether it's the small little things you don't see and O'Connell used to always talk about that um, and you can see that's something that, that Australia definitely possibly has an edge on now in terms of uh, the second row battles for the weekend He's also not afraid to cry Orwell which is a sign of strength Yeah man. I really like I really like that about him. Actually, in some of the warm up games, you could see Horwell was in, wasn't wasn't playing, but he was in the crowd. And he was getting really emotional. He was getting really into it. Even in you know at the final whistle, we saw that those tears. But you know his tactical awareness. He went for a real big gamble with that scrum in front of the post in the last few game in the last few minutes. There, really that came that came good in in, in the end, and uh, that probably added to his emotion at the end. It's an interesting point, Shane, because we were talking to you last week about the pre match huddles and the stuff that said between players under the post after a try scored and you were saying you don't want to be getting too wound up there but um, you could probably see with the way Horrell reacted last weekend that there is a huge amount of emotion that you're bottling up in the course of a game maybe even more so in his case and he let it all hang out at the end well I think that's you know that's a, a different matter altogether you know I think it's very it's, it's great and that's why one of the reasons why you play rugby and you play top level sport is to have that um, be able to release that energy and release that excitement and joy and, and passion after the game you know where you can let it all you let it all hang out as it were and you know I think there's probably clips of all of us after big games, you know, that you'd look back on and be pretty embarrassed about. But it's actually the coolness to make the right decisions on the field is is more important. You know, it's yeah, that's sort of like an there's an indulgence at the end of the game, and you can let yourself go, and you can see he did let himself go. But for, that just shows that he was controlling himself right throughout the game. And I suppose the the areas where you don't control yourself, or the times you don't control yourself, is when you slip into the areas that he was in the first test where you put a boot on someone. And I think that's probably what he, you know, that was an unleashing of all the, the emotions that he had in that week, you know, maybe some concerns in himself of what was going to go on in the next week. And the fact that, you know, he might be in a bit of trouble, disappointed in what he did in that first test and the fact that he lost. And then the massive release of winning that second test in the nature that they won it as well. So, you know, that's why, you know, you play rugby. And also, I think it's one of the reasons why we like watching it. We like watching a high-level sport because, you know, people lose it a bit after the game because there is so much tied up in the, in success. We also like watching teams who are on the cusp of achieving great things go out and reach out and go and grab it, which I don't think the Lions did last weekend by their own admission. Brian O'Driscoll said they didn't really show much in attack. Johnny Sexton says it was almost as if we were wishing for the game to finish rather than going out to get it ourselves 
any signs, any idea, Trevor, if they can actually make it happen this time to go out and take it? Because that was a bit of a disappointing aspect last weekend. Yeah, it was. It was. Um, it was very frustrating to watch just with the talent that the, the Lions actually have. Uh, you know, in the back line, especially, um, possibly also on the bench in their in the back row, um, that they're not really utilising that. And you could see it from the outset. The kind of the attitude for for from Gatlin to probably hammer home this this ten man line out that he always uses. And uh, you know, they used that initially and was okay. Let's. They were going for they were going for the throat, but then they didn't follow it through. They actually instead went for the three points when there was a warning from the ref so there was a little bit of edginess there and they were probably under the under the, the uh, instruction early on we're just going to look to we're looking to kick for field position they were using box kicks from the middle of the field it was so strange they were using the Gary Owens which can work sometimes is there a did. disconnect then Trevor in some ways between what the management want and what some of the key players want I, I would say so. I would guess that. I don't think Johnny Sexton wants to see wanted to see Ben Young's box kicking from a really good lineup off the top ball. The one early in the second half, Davies actually got over the the, the gain line, which people are criticising for not doing. And then straight away, Ben Young's puts up a massive box kick and goes straight to Tamani, and then they're under under pressure again. Johnny Sexton be going crazy there about that. And I think we got an indication of that. He was saying on the field that they wanted to go go after the game and not sit back. And that's what they did in the second half, and they relied on, on that strategy um, and I'd say you're, you're, I would guess that that's coming from, from Gatland and maybe that and possibly Rob Howie that that's the approach they wanted they just wants to win that game um, you can understand that listen it was working up until the last five minutes but it was just a little bit conservative and I think it was always going to come back to haunt them because you sit back against Australia Australia made an unbelievable amount of handling errors they won't do that again this weekend Australia probably would have, would have been ahead if they had to put those handling errors together the Lions defence was quite strong but they kept just dropping the ball at crucial stages and finally when they didn't drop the ball you know they, they managed to create the pressure to score and I don't think that approach from the Lions this weekend will work if they sit back and try to kick for field position it's just, it just not good it's just it's a travesty as well with the talent they have you know? Shane do you sense any disconnect there between what the players want and what the management are looking for? Actually myself and Trev were, watched the game uh, together um, on Saturday and it was exactly what we were saying even before uh, Johnny Sexton came out it looked as if the Lions were trying to fall over the line and you're always in danger of getting beaten if you're doing that if you're not playing positive if you're not trying to to uh, manufacture scores and push on ahead it looks as if they were just barely trying to do enough to win the test now you know, the Lions are different than any other team. You don't have to be building for the future for the Lions. You don't. And that's not an issue. You're not thinking, you know, where it's going to be, you know, next year, the year after. That's of no concern to anyone. It is only winning the games. So from that uh, respect, you know, you could see Gatlin's mentality. But for me, if you're only just trying to do enough to get over the line, as opposed to, you know, really... Uh, stamping your authority in the game, you're always in danger of what uh, of happening. What happened at the weekend? And for me, if I was playing that backline, which is an immensely talented backline, and I see the first opportunity, they went for the they went for the kick to the corner. I thought, oh, this is absolutely brilliant. Like this is really setting out the right stall. They kick to the corner, but then they use a 10, 12 man lineout where you're using some of the most talented backs in the world to you know to push over a team into the corner like for me that just didn't make any sense and uh, you know I'd be trying to tie up as many fours as they could so I could go backs against backs and 
I think it really showed there was there wasn't enough uh, ingenuity as to how they were going to 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 get over the uh, gain line, how they're going to speed up the ruck ball, so they could really have an opportunity to see, you know, the ball in Brian O'Driscoll's hands, to see it in in Davies' hands, to see it in North's hands with a little bit of time and a little bit of space. And um, I think a lot of those troubles also came from lineout time, where they're persisting with. Um, having to get the ball off two or, or you know, very often four going forward, not much t- uh, line out ball off the top and never seeing a ball go to the tail that's actually being caught. And you know, that's a bit of an indictment of, you know, yeah, the hookers, but also actually the whole line out system because I know Australia are defending very strongly and Trev will tell you about this, they're very strong and defending very strongly throughout that line out but you have to if you can't manufacture a ball directly that comes off the top then you have to be looking to you know use your blindside wing somehow and um, by throwing a pass to them getting into that uh, gap outside the last two of the line out getting into that soft area and then going really fast uh, around the corner or peeling around the back of the line out getting hands going and again into that soft area between the, the end of the defensive line out and and the 10, and then going fast, getting line out, getting fast ruck ball off that. And these options never seemed uh, to be uh, initiated by the Lions. And, you know, I thought that showed like, a lack, a real lack of, of um, innovation and, and ingenuity that that you would have expected from the Lions at this stage. Well, now that the pressure is heightened even further this weekend, Trevor, are you concerned that actually, rather than being more ambitious and trying a few more of these things, that there actually might be even less coherence? They might go even further back into somewhat of a shell. Well, that's, a, that's, a, that's the dilemma facing them this week now. And I'd say a big person for that would be Johnny Sexton and Brian O'Driscoll going to have to step forward and actually consciously change the strategy. Um, maybe that might be taken out. If Mike Phillips is playing, and I, I would probably be pushing for him to start if he's okay, because he can really set that strong tempo there. He's very good at probing around around the rooks and, and looking for to feed the, feed his forwards when he's on when he's on song, which he wasn't last week. Ben Young's wasn't he wasn't accurate. He was sluggish as well. Maybe he was there was an edginess about the back line and maybe that is coming from the top in terms of the style of game that we're playing. The more confident in trying to keep it keep the ball in hand and trying to, to you know work the phases and get wide and come back with some some of Johnny Sexton's wraparound moves. Some of that some of the stuff we've seen in, in the in the game in Hong Kong specifically, um, where they were, they were a little bit edgy about using that, so it's, you know they hopefully won't fall back into the conservative um, approach. Uh, they, they have to really go for it now this weekend, and I think if they have if they have the courage to to do it, then you know it could pay off. But it'll come from the selection of maybe Phillips at nine. Possibly you're going to have to look at. Um, Roberts instead of Davies and maybe that will give them that impetus to go for the game Yeah, it's interesting Shane that Trevor says that the players have to drive this at O'Driscoll and Sexton these kind of guys it's a different environment from an international team or especially a club team when you're building up that level of trust but would Gatland be the type of person do you think who will actually listen to senior players if they come to him during the week and would have to be early on in the week by now and actually tell him that they need to change things yeah, I think actually, you know, Gatlin will have realised that, it'll, you know, down the numbers that they are, they mightn't be able to bully, or they're certainly taking a big risk of trying to bully uh, the Aussies over the line. And as a result, they might look to uh, play a little bit more this week. You know, it wouldn't take vast changes um, in the style of play to give them a bit more space and to let them play a bit more. You know, a lot of it would be generated 
from you know decent go forward ball and and you know that maybe may come about if, if Roberts plays us though Roberts hasn't played particularly well on this tour and you know as, as is very often the case if you're you're, you're often become a be- better player when you're not in the team than uh, when you are in the team so he hadn't performed particularly well um, on the tour this far but he is a class act and he's well able to get you over the game line um, but it, that would you know really be on the basis that they can organise their lineup a little better because no matter how you do it if you're just going straight down from two or, or four going forward and sticking it into the scrum half's hands and saying do something from there it is very difficult without some sort of wrinkle without some sort of sophistication uh, on the move to get over the game line but I do think Johnny Sexton uh, and uh, Brian O'Driscoll I'd say Phillips as well you're talking uh, um, the second rows as well they'll be talking to each other going actually you know this wasn't working against what is not a brilliant uh, Australian team and they're Australian team that do make mistakes so if the I didn't think the Lions retained the ball very well if they could retain the ball for, for uh, multi-phases I think that the Australians would come under pressure and you know, threat-wise from Australia, they didn't really pose a huge threat at any stage during the game for me, aside from the penalties. Yeah, they scored the try, but if you look at the defensive system they should have been employed, that was pretty straight-up defence. Um, Davies got caught a little bit looking at Brian O'Driscoll's man, came in and uh, left the gap for um, uh, Ashley, uh, Ashley Cooper. Uh, yeah, Ashley yeah, Ashley Cooper, yeah, where they, um, you know, that was a really, you know, it was a pretty simple defensive mistake. Other than that, I thought the Lions looked very strong. And the Aussies are letting the ball go really, really loose in the contact area. And that is a vital mistake. And I think that comes from like a, a New Zealand Robbie Dean's approach where, you know, if you see the way New Zealand play, very simple. They don't have a huge amount of moves, but they run really strongly and they get their hands free. And I think the Aussies are in between doing what they normally do is, you know, trying to break teams down with moves um, and trying to offload the ball. But what they're doing is they're offloading the ball in the contact. And that is like the number one rule that you do not do. You don't, you offload the ball either before contact or after contact. And you see they're really pushing those passes in the contact. And that's why so much ball went down. Now, the Lions can really, really exploit that if they get in the passing channels. Like they can pick up a lot of turnover ball there. And also that's the kind of ball that puts you in a brilliant um, attacking uh, position. So there's huge opportunities for this Lions team because the Aussies aren't, you know, they aren't a massive force. And I would have said like a team like Australia, or a team like New Zealand or South Africa at the moment would p- prove a much bigger challenge. So, you know, there's all these factors going into the melting pot for the weekend. And it just depends on the mentality of the two sides to see, you know, where they're going to come out at the, after the game on Saturday. Quick word on team selection, Trevor. What are the changes you're making there? A couple of enforced changes, but overall... What yeah, touching on what Shane is saying, a lot of it's going to come down to the platform for the weekend. And I think the, the Lions are going to be praying that Corbis Aero is, is OK. Not, no, like, I know if one of Polo did OK to come back and to carry and show great bravery, but he's a major weak link in, in, that, in that loose head position. But the problem with Corbis Aero is his calf is... A calf does not heal, especially for a, for a prop in the space of a couple of weeks. He's going to be... They're going to be going after him there. So 
the Lions possibly they, they don't have that platform in the scrum to dominate to play that conservative game that, that Gatlin wants so that's a major issue and I keep going back to why, why Andrew Sheridan isn't out there once Keane Healy got injured this whole Lions series start, transformed they did not have that ability to dominate in the scrum and it's, it's not allowing them to play the way they want so I'd hope like, to be looking to get Corbusero back in but major question mark over his calf um, I probably I know what Shane is saying about the line out issues but I think Parling is still your best man to call uh, the line out He's, uh, Ian Evans had a, some major issues with calling and some of his strategy early on the tour so I'd, I'd probably hold on to Parling he back, did, row. back row then you're looking at Sean O'Brien guaranteed if he's not starting then they're going to lose straight up and if, if uh, I'd be looking as well at Lydia must probably have to drop to the bench because I know everyone talks about how great he is at chopping tackles but he didn't do that even that much of that at the weekend he got badly handed off by Falau so I'd probably put Croft in there for him Jamie's going strong so I keep him there in the back row outside of that then Phillips at nine and possibly looking at Jamie Robert, Roberts for Davies yeah Conor Murray could be extremely unlucky and miss yeah. every place on the bench despite coming on this is it this is like, a problem well, well, there but he's, he's done brilliant whenever he's got the chance Shane any different uh, selections for yourself there yeah, no, I, I think uh, you'd really be hoping that Corbusero uh, was back and uh, he was fit. Um, you don't want a guy coming on and going off after 10 minutes. That'd be a disaster for the Lions, but I'm sure they have um, effective um, processes in place um, to, to make sure that he would be he would be fit to go at least uh, 60. So if he could be on, that'd be great. I think, you know, Hibbert might come in. Um, he wasn't that impressive uh, when he came on the bench he didn't seem to be working as hard as he might do but I just have a feeling that Gatlin might go from I think the second rows will remain the same I'd look for a big shake up in the back row I have to say probably only retaining uh, Jamie Heaslip I'd look for Sean O'Brien actually I think he'd go for Sean I'd like personally to see him go for Sean at 6 and the Tipperick at at 7 and have a really mixed up back row and, and go after them then I think that would you know that would uh, really allow them to, to uh, be more effective on the the speed of the ball that they uh, that they get for the back line. I don't think the speed of the ball. I think that has been fast enough, and that's been a real issue. You have those two guys in place along with Jamie Heaslam and maybe uh, Feltow on the bench. Then you've got a real um, opportunity to, to to speed up some fast ball and and some game breakers. And I think those two back rowers actually in Tipperick. Um, and um, Sean O'Brien have performed really well right throughout the um, right throughout the tour. I think he'll probably bring back Roberts for Davies. I wouldn't actually. I'd leave Davies. I know things didn't go brilliantly for the, that centre pairing, but I'd leave them to them together. I think they could be they could be good foils. And it's very hard to to go well when you're not getting the right type of ball. And I think they've been the two, best two centres on tour. So I'd have them and retain the others. Tommy Bow definitely. Uh, Halfpenny's been great and North. He's been really uh, promising as well. And the only uh, then it's a bit of a shake-up. Would you change your nine? Um, I think he probably will. Again, it's based around whether um, the uh, whether Phillips is going to be fit enough to get at least sixty out of him. I think um, so far Ben Youngs has looked better coming off the bench than he has starting. So I'd imagine that will be the setup. Okay, well that back row, that Tipperick, Sean O'Brien, he's the back row gets the Simon Hick vote of approval. Shane, I'm sure you're delighted to know that. It also happens to be Jim well, Telfer's. Yeah, Jim Telfer's back row choice predictions wise. Shane, you're looking to avoid a whitewash here. You're zero from two so far. Tre- Trevor here is on the cusp. He's two from two. So who are you going for this week? He's golden. I'm just thinking as well, it should be a bit of reverse psychology. Should I actually tip Australia here because I want the Lions to win? I, I think it's I your duty a, at this stage, Shane, isn't it? I, I, you know what? I'm going to go with the Lions because I just have a feeling... Well, it depends on who he picks. It depends on who he picks, obviously. But um, 
I, I do think the Lions have enough um, creativity, and I think they have more creativity than Australia. And I think if they utilize that, I think they can win. Trevor, who's actually going to win? Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I say, I, 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 can, I, can, I actually kind of agree with Shane, but just for the sake of it, I'm going to go with Australia. Nice. I, don't, I don't think they will actually make, be as sloppy as they were at the weekend with their handling errors. And I think, uh, yeah, I think whatever Shane was going to pick, I'll probably just go with the opposite. Trevor Hogan, Shane Horgan, Bridges, so for chat to you soon. All right. Well. And that's pretty much it from second captains of the Irish Times this week I think you can check us out on Twitter at second captains facebook.com forward slash second captains and uh, email us at editor at secondcaptains.com but I should mention Ken before we go it's a very very special day it's a birthday indeed not only July 2nd Ken not only of Lindsay I know you're an expert at this kind of stuff Lindsay Lohan mm-hmm. it's her birthday it's Larry David's birthday one of the funniest yeah, comic writers around of course and Brett the Hitman Hart the excellence of execution himself of course a corner a cornerstone not Owen Hart no no Owen Hart God be so, good to him sadly no longer with us and this is Brett the Hitman Hart a cornerstone of the Hart Foundation possibly a cousin of Owen Hart who knows Ken yeah that, well I mean it's, that's very interesting I suppose the thing about every day is that it is somebody's birthday so I'm kind of wondering why you've brought this up Owen happy birthday to you Kieran. Ah, thanks guys Thanks, thanks a million. No, I, I really appreciate it. Uh, this is the, probably the, the first time you've ever deigned to mention my birthday uh, on, on a show, mm-hmm. so I, I really do appreciate Any it. Any particular plans? Uh, not really, no. I'm just going to kick back, relax, and read another top-class edition of the Irish Times. <laughs> uh, that's the only way that any man should celebrate his birthday. Maybe go out for a few pints later on the doll bar with Miriam Lord. Who knows? Who knows where the night will take me, Ken? <sighs> we'll talk to you next week. Take care. So that's the question that's going to be answered tonight. Tonight. So now, come here tonight. Tonight. Into Wexford Park, and they just must produce the goods tonight. Tonight. Their team is better set up tonight. Tonight. But they just, the bottom line is, Michael, they have to do tonight. Tonight. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.